to The Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer, the humble lycanthrope. And I'm Sarah Hartman. And this is Murder Coaster. Step right up, step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Come and hear the story of a man born into the life of a sideshow freak. A man with the heart of a clam and the hands of a lobster. A tale of forlorn love, murder, violence, and drunken debauchery. From dusty circus midways to carnival back alleys. From the bright lights of New York City to the trailer parks of Carneytown, Florida. We bring you a tale of circus fever and carny power. The truly American and extremely Floridian story of Gary Stiles Jr., a.k.a. The Lobster Boy. But first, dear listeners and fellow freaks, we want to give you a fun little history of the sideshow and its culture, as well as look at the word freak itself, what its meanings and implications are, and how it's changed through the ages. Before the internet, before television and movies, before the radio, when bored folks wanted amusement and entertainment, nothing beat the circus. And no old school circus was complete without the freak show. One of the first known exhibitors of human oddities in Western culture was the Bartholomew Fair outside of London. Now, the Bartholomew Fair began in 1133. So freak shows have been going on in London long before Shakespeare and even Chaucer. The Bartholomew Fair was in existence for over 700 years when it was eventually closed in 1855 for encouraging debauchery and public disorder, the fair being called and I quote, a school of vice, which has initiated more youth into the habits of villainy than Newgate Prison. <laughs> a school of vice initiating youth into the habits of villainy. Love it. Sounds like Grateful Dead tour back in the day. In the uh, early 1600s, there was this Italian guy, Lazarus Colorado. And he had a parasitic twin brother named Johannes Baptista Colorado. And I bet you they definitely stopped by the Bartholomew Fair a few times. They were like hella famous and toured all over Europe as freaks. It's a uh, pretty gnarly. Just Johannes's left leg and torso hung out of Lazarus's waist. And Lazarus would just like cover him up with a cape when he was out and about. And okay. Are you ready for this craziness? You know I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, apparently Lazarus killed someone and was sentenced to death. But he got off on the charge because it would also kill his brother as well. Get out. Well, the internet says it's true, so it must be. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, oh, they have their own Wikipedia page. There's pictures of them as well, like old Italian drawings. I'll post them up on our Instagram page. You know, shit like this, too weird to not be true. But across the pond here in America, 
One of the first known displays of human oddities was a notice in a colonial newspaper in 1738 advertising the exhibition of a four-foot-high woman with the head of an ape. That's uh, 40 years before the Revolutionary War. Wow. But something about that ad pulls at the heartstrings. Like, that poor woman. And just to be clear, we're not condoning the exploitation of disabled people here. We just want to give a history lesson. And as we'll see, often the freak show was a means of empowerment for marginalized people. And many, to this day, use the term freak as a point of pride. And many who identify with that moniker are self-made as well. But more on that later. Let's get on with the show. For the circus, there was the Dime Museum. That's right. They called freak shows museums back in the day, trying to lend an air of science and education to the exhibits. Though, as Professor Robert Borgen says in his book, Freak Show, Presenting Human Oddities for Amusement and Profit, every person exhibited was misrepresented to the public, and fraud was central to the freak show. In other words, it was all an act, all entertainment, and there was no bigger displayer of human oddities than P.T. Barnum's American Museum. Opening in 1842, Barnum's American Museum was a five-story behemoth on the corner of Broadway and Park Row in New York City, jam-packed with everything from Chang and Ang, the original Siamese twins, the Fiji mermaid, a plethora of little people or midges and dwarves as they were known at the time, Giants, ventriloquists, magicians, bears trained by Grizzly Adams himself, a flea circus, and all kinds of other wacky shit displayed under the guise of educational and scientific. Upwards of 15,000 people a day visited this quote-unquote museum. And Barnum didn't charge just a dime like all the other so-called museums of the time. Nope. He charged a whole quarter. The money was pouring in. But alas, Barnum's American Museum burned to the ground in one of the most spectacular fires Manhattan had ever seen in 1865. A time which is just about when the golden age of the circus begins. And here is where we get the term sideshow. To get to the central tent of the circus, which housed the ring where the main performers did their acts, one had to walk down the midway, the central avenue leading to the big top. Along the midway, to the sides, were smaller acts and the freak show exhibits. Hence the term sideshows as they were on the sides of the midways but in their heyday many of the sideshow acts were just as famous if not even more famous than the central acts the trapeze artists and tightrope walkers lion tamers and stilt walking clowns just to give you an example of how famous some sideshow freaks were 
really the equivalent of today's rock stars when the famous little person, Tom Thumb, married fellow little person, Lavinia Warren Stratton. Over 2,000 guests attended, among them governors, members of Congress, generals, and New York's richest and most distinguished citizens. And the streets were so crowded that police had to set up barricades to control the throngs. President Lincoln gave a reception in their honor in the White House for their grand honeymoon tour. It's insane. They were bigger than the Kardashians, Paris Hilton, and Machine Gun Kelly combined. Or look at Maximo and Bartola. Build is the last of the ancient Aztecs, said to be found on an altar in Mexico as children, where they were worshipped by the locals as the last of a sacred race. Yet, in reality, they were the children of Mexican peasants and suffered from microcephaly, a condition where the head is tiny and the forehead slopes upward at an angle due to the lack of brain development as an infant. They were uh, often labeled pinheads back then. These uh, fraudulent children were so lauded, so celebrated, that they were the guests of President Fillmore at the White House, brought to Buckingham Palace to meet the royal family, appeared before Emperor Napoleon and his imperial family in Paris. The Emperor of Russia, the kings and queens of Prussia, Bavaria, Holland, Hanover, Belgium, and Denmark Basically, all of European royalty wanted to host them. Again, let me reiterate, these were just seriously disabled children of Mexican peasants, but they were freaks and therefore could be anything imagined of them. For as Professor Robert Bogdan says, freak is a way of thinking, of presenting, not a characteristic of an individual. It's all an act, and this can be seen in the etymology of the word freak itself. Derived from the Old English terms for capricious, insolent, and daring, freak went on to become a term for the abnormal and the strange. By the 1950s, the word freak had become an insult, and an ugly and terrible one at that. But the nonconformists of the 60s seized on the word with a sense of pride, and it became synonymous with hippie, carrying on into the 70s with comic books like the fabulous furry Freak Brothers, new religious movements proudly proclaiming themselves Jesus Freaks, and gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson even ran for sheriff of Aspen, Colorado in 1970 under the slogan, Freak power. Then came the burgeoning punk movement, spearheaded by the Ramones, who reveled in all things freak, adopting the pinhead of the old freak show as their mascot and revising the song from the 1932 horror film Freaks that went, Goobo gobble, we accept you, one of us, into the rallying cry, Gabba Gabba hey, Gabba Gabba hey, and on an evolutionary front, isn't it the freak that creates higher life forms? 
Isn't it genetic mutations that pave the way for the thinking and philosophizing hairless ape that knows its own mortality, that's eaten of the tree of good and evil? So maybe our own tattooed lady here, Sarah Hartman, who also happens to be a licensed therapist, can elaborate on the psychological aspects of what it means to be a freak. In order for us to truly understand what it means to be a freak, we must first understand what it means to be ordinary. And I do think that it's important that we start here. After all, we at Murder Coaster and our listeners are probably not prone to considering what is normal after all. So what does it mean to be normal? Why do people conform? Primarily, we conform for the purposes of survival and protection. Survival is easier as a member of a larger community. Humans are naturally predisposed to look for context clues that will help us determine how we can help our group and how we can avoid rejection by them. Humans are consistently making unconscious judgments and behavioral comparisons to maintain a comfortable level of conformity. As much as 10% of our daily thoughts involve social comparisons of some kind, and social comparison theory shows people feel better about themselves when they're encouraged to make comparisons between themselves and others who are worse off or who demonstrate lesser abilities. Freak shows and other so-called lowbrow forms of entertainment, reality TV, tabloids, YouTube fails, whatever, are driven as much by curiosity as human insecurity. Exactly. And in these modern times, we get a boost to our self-esteem, not so much by mocking physical differences, but more from gawking at psychological deviations. Hello, fellow true crime fans. And also at outlandish behavior, uh, like Jackass, Fear Factor, Jerry Springer, anyone? Freak shows are theater at the core. Freak show promoters were very much aware of the psychology of their patrons and leveraged it to make money. Historically speaking, there are four subtypes of freaks in the industry. Born freaks, made freaks, novelty acts, and the phonies. What can you tell us about the psychology of each one, Sarah? In the context of the traditional freak show, born freaks are people who are born with a physical deformity or an anatomical anomaly. Their appearances alone are often enough of a barrier to conformity that fitting into society for them is not entirely an option. It's just too difficult to blend in. And uh, we'll see that our lobster boy falls into this category. Absolutely. And when asked, freak show performers say the circus gives them their own community. Their sideshow represents a family of people that accepts them as they are. It's a place where they can feel safe and belong. And that's kind of what we hope Murder Coaster can be for you too, fellow freaks. 
This is a place where you can come and have your weirdness both understood and celebrated. Woohoo! Hell yeah! Now you're talking. And the freak show was an exclusive counterculture where only those remarkable individuals could truly belong. Not only that, but it paid well. Many born freaks joined a sideshow because it was their best option for care. It would mean plenty of money and an entire entourage to help with activities of daily living that might otherwise have been complicated by physical disabilities. Now, what about made freaks? What inspires someone to create an unusual body for themselves? Before we dive into that one, it's time for a disclaimer. Like Matthew mentioned earlier, I've got tattoos, he's got tattoos. Well, hell, we're both physically modified by choice. I'm not here to diagnose anyone who chooses body art or plastic surgery, either in small or large amounts. Good news for us, though. People who choose not to conform exhibit higher levels of leadership and charisma in their interactions with others. In other words, we're creative, but we're also impulsive risk takers. When asked in interviews, made freaks have expressed so many motivations for changing their bodies. Body art as fashion, proving toughness and courage, asserting independence, even recovering emotionally from a traumatic event by reinventing themselves. And tattoos are thought to be a defense mechanism against negative emotions. I know they make me happy when I get them. Just the smell of green soap gets me giddy. And just to shed some light on the history of tattoos and the freak show, the very first tattooed man featured in P.T. Barnum's American Museum was James O'Connell in 1840. He was a big hit though he didn't really have that many tattoos. But he was followed by Captain Constantinus, who was completely covered. Hands, face, feet, even his eyelids and the inner parts of his ear were tattooed. And he was a bona fide star, appearing in Harper's Weekly and becoming quite the sex symbol. Interesting to note, both these men said they were forced to be tattooed as a means of torture by savages, which is obvious bullshit, but all part of that freak show act and tradition. Like we said before, it's all an act. And being a freak means you can be whatever you want to be. Soon, everyone was jumping on the tattoo bandwagon, especially with the introduction of the electric tattoo machine in 1891. There were tattooed fat people, Tattooed half people, tattooed knife throwers, lots and lots of tattooed ladies, which gave an extra thrill because they lift their skirt. They show you the art on their leg and thigh. Ooh, la la. There were whole tattooed families, including the children. And Coney Island even featured a tattooed cow. I will put some photos up on Instagram. But by 1931, it was completely over. And James Filbert, who'd once been a famous tattooed man on the sideshow circuit, was now scrubbing floors and washing dishes just to get by. Tattoos had become passe, 
and no one wanted to pay to see them anymore. Aw. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other two types of freaks are novelty acts and phonies. Novelty acts are performers who do something unusual for the show. That's our sword swallowers, contortionists, strongmen. They're serious athletes. And then the last type of free show performer is known as a gaffed freak or a phony. These are freaks who fabricated their oddity, like the armless wonder whose arms were hidden under a tight-fitting shirt, or Siamese twins, who were really nothing more than two people in an outfit to make them appear conjoined. This was pure gimmick, and it was backed up by good marketing. But at the end of the day, those performers themselves were normal folk who just wanted to make an extra buck. These gaffes were traditionally looked down on with scorn and disdain. But just to play the devil's advocate here, as is often my want, Lee Stevens, chairman of the International Independent Showmen's Association, says, it's the entrepreneurship of it all. It's open to anyone with an idea, to anybody who want to partake. It goes back to having freedom of choice, of not having to sell your soul to a company store, work nine to five for a factory, and never getting anywhere beyond a minimum obligatory raise. Heck yeah, and very true. And I think we caught up on the history and the psychology of the sideshow. Well, thank you so much for that, Sarah. And for the curious, during her research, Sarah actually wrote a 15-page essay on the psychological aspects of the term freak. And you can find that in our, in our show notes. It's amazing and well worth a read. Oh, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now on to the tragic life of Grady Stiles Jr. A love triangle between the smallest man alive, the electrified girl, and the notorious claw-handed lobster boy, and his henchman, the 600-pound fat man. But brake lines on an old jalopy pickup truck, stabbings over hot dogs on the carnival midway, the fierce competition between the ballet talkers of the Gorilla Girl Act and the Human Oddities exhibit, ending in fisticuffs and slugfests, all leading to a murder for hire orchestrated by the human blockhead. Sounds like something from the 1930s, right? A noir plot out of Nightmare Alley or Todd Browning's Freaks. But this strange tale climaxes in 1992, a time not that long ago. We present to you, ladies and gentlemen, the sad and sordid story of the Lobster Boy. Grady Franklin Stiles Jr. was born July 18, 1937, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Like his father, Grady Stiles Sr., also known as Lobster Man, little Grady carried the ectrodactyly gene, which caused him to be born with no middle fingers and the pinky and ring finger, as well as the index and thumb fingers, fused together, giving his hands a look very similar to, 
lobster claws. And claws would be the term Grady Jr. himself used for his hands, just to be clear. But unlike his father, who had perfectly normal legs, this genetic deformity carried on to Grady Jr.'s lower extremities as well. Below his knees, his legs withered, and his toes had the same genetic fusing, leaving him unable to walk. While he often used a wheelchair, he also became very adept at locomoting with his arms and hands, swinging himself along, and was said to be just as fast with his claws as any normie was on their feet. A bit about ectrodactyly, also known as split hand or cleft hand. The term is derived from the Greek words ectroma and dactylos, which literally translates into abortion finger. It's an incredibly rare congenital deformity, only one in 90,000 picking up the gene. But once you have said gene, every child you produce will have a 50-50 chance of carrying it as well. And the Grady family aren't the only famous case of ectrodactyly. Most famously, Lord Lockreed, vocalist and guitarist for the French black metal band Nocturnal Depression, who is also an author, has a severe case on his fretting hand. Another musician, Daisy Yu, born with the condition, yet after surgeries that separated her fingers, went on to become a classical pianist. News anchor and radio host Bree Walker, who is also a disability rights spokeswoman, is afflicted by the genes. And model Haley Bieber has a very mild case of it that only affects her pinky fingers. She, by the way, is married to the famous Justin Bieber. Hmm. You learn something new every day. And uh, growing up in Pittsburgh was pretty tough on Grady Jr. The other kids were cruel. And when superstitious women saw him, they would spit on the ground as means of warding off the lobster curse. It's, that's tough. Yeah. But uh, Grady Sr.'s father, he didn't see it as a curse at all, but as a means of making money in the sideshow. Now, the first styles to catch hold of electrodactyly gene stretches all the way back to 1840. But Grady Sr. was the first to forge a living from it and soon had his son, Grady Jr., literally in on the act when he was just seven years old, christening him Lobster Boy, a name that would stick with him until the day of his violent death at age 55. So Lobster Man and Lobster Boy toured the country with the LaRoe Brothers' 10-in-1 freak show, where the Lobster family was the star attraction. And by all accounts, Grady Jr. enjoyed performing with his father. It, it had to be better than being picked on and spit at back in Pittsburgh. Right? Lots of things are, for real. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, Grady Jr. really liked it when the family eventually changed their home base from Pittsburgh to Gibsonton, Florida. Hell yeah, he did. Gibsonton, Florida. What a town. Yes, it is. 
And I really want us to just take a moment here and talk about this legendary place real quick. Sure. 12 miles south of Tampa, Gibsonton, Florida, affectionately known as Gibtown and even Carneytown, was a renowned winter haven and retirement destination for sideshow freaks and carnies of all shapes and sizes. From the roustabouts who set up the rides and tents to the bally collar, and by the way, don't call them barkers. That's a big no-no. To the grub cart hot dog vendor. And we can't talk about old Gibtown without first mentioning the legendary Ward Hall. That's right. Ward Hall was known as the king of the sideshow. Born in the early 1930s in a small Nebraska town, at just 15 years old, he ran away from home and joined the Daly Brothers Circus as a magician and ventriloquist. Soon, he found himself the sideshow manager of the Roger Brothers Circus, and by 1967, had started his own sideshow with partner Chris Christ, working with Circus Vargas, Ringling Brothers, and Barnum and & Bailey, and countless state fairs managing such iconic acts as Schlitzy the Pinhead. Ward Hall also starred in over a hundred films. He had three Smithsonian exhibitions. He was honored in several halls of fame, sang at Carnegie Hall, and performed at Madison Square Garden. As you can see, he was quite the performer. And Hall made his home in Gibsonton and brought with him his merry band of freaks, such as Priscilla the Monkey Girl and Emmett the Alligator Skin Man, who, incidentally, these two fell in love, married, and stayed in Gibsonton the rest of their lives. About the various sideshow performers, Hall liked to say, they were a family and I was the papa. Love it. And while Ward Hall became the face of Gibsonton, when he first arrived in 1967, there were already over a hundred human oddities and over a thousand carnies and roustabouts making a home there. But with the arrival of Ward, Gibsonton truly became Carney Town. And so many incredibly famous people made it a home back in the day, such as Johann Christian Peterson the Icelandic giant. Johan immigrated to the States post-World War II after finding out his show's dwarf harmonica players had all been murdered by the Nazis. Mm. Uh, yeah, that was a really tragic story. Um, and then there was Betty Lou Williams, the four-legged wonder, and she had a parasitic sister growing out of her abdomen. Yeah, she was uh, just like those Italian brothers I was talking about. Yes. So There's pictures of her around, too. I'll try to maybe post her up, too. And these performers not only made it a home in the off months of the carnival season, they were active parts of the community. The giant and his wife, the half woman, ran a restaurant and campground. Siamese twins ran a fruit stand. And the town itself catered to the performers. The beer hall had custom-built chairs for the fat ladies and the tall men. The post office had special counters for little people. 
Special zoning regulations allowed residents to keep and train exotic animals. Chimps would be swinging from the trees, and big cats lived in backyards. And the warm weather and temperate climate allowed trainers to work with their animals daily, which apparently is very important. For they say if you skip just one day of training, these animals can forget the act and go feral. Whoa. Uh, consistency is key here for yeah, sure. You, especially the big cat, man. You don't want them going feral. Yeah, no, very important. <laughs> it's a big responsibility. Really is. And um, yeah, such a place though. And you know, in its own way, Gibtown was one of the most inclusive places in the United States. It really was. To me, Gibtown represents how the freak show was a direct extension of the American dream itself. As Hall said, for the first hundred years of us as a nation, the majority of people came from elsewhere. Everyone here was another, an outsider. They came here because they had a dream and an idea that tomorrow was going to be a better day if they only worked hard enough and were smart. Sideshow was only an extreme version of that. And Gibsonton remained a home for freaks well up into the 2000s. But all things pass eventually, and Ward's last human oddity, Norbert Pete Terhune, or Pooba the fire-eating dwarf and king of the pygmies, well, he passed away in 2012, and then Ward Hall himself died in 2018. Today... There's not many sideshow performers left in Gibsonton, though one might still catch a sword swallower or fire breather practicing their craft. But there is still an annual trade show, a carnival museum, and a boot memorial. What is a boot memorial? Boot memorial? Can you, can you explain memorial. that? <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Located on Highway 41 by the Alafia River, there is a replica of the size 25 boot and it's atop an eight foot four inch tall granite pillar now these were the specifications that represent the height and the shoe size of al tomani the giant you know he i mentioned him earlier he ran the giant's fishing camp and a restaurant not only was tomani a physical giant but he was a giant in the community as well he was the fire chief and president of the Chamber of Commerce. Talk about big shoes to fill. Am I really going to yeah, make that right. joke? I feel like I'm going to make that Very joke. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's, that's actually really fascinating, though. All jokes aside, that's cool. Um, but I suppose I should reel it back in and um, we should get back to Lobster Boy and go on with the show. So not much is known about Grady Style Jr.'s parents or his relationship with them besides the fact that they passed on a love of alcohol while, the, while they were beer drinkers grady jr developed a taste for the hard stuff particularly seagram seven and we do know that grady styles senior lobster man quit the sideshow business in 1961 because of health issues and our lobster man moved back to pittsburgh but old lobster boy Grady Stiles Jr., he kept right at it. He had circus fever, 
and sawdust in his blood, as the carnies like to say. And soon, soon Lobster Boy was in love with none other than the electrified girl, Mary Teresa. Like many before her, Mary Teresa escaped a very troubled life by literally running away to join the circus when she was just a teenager. But sadly, she went from an abusive and incestuous home life to an abusive and terribly violent spousal life when she married Carney Roustabout Jerry Plummer, who was known to beat her senseless before eventually abandoning her. But as fate would have it, the recently divorced Teresa found true love when she met Grady Jr. at the World of Mirth Carnival, where she'd been rising up the Carney ranks. Mary went from belly girl to Don't call her Barker. girl. Never, never. I never do that. <laughs> and she went from belly girl to blade box girl, which is an act where she would stand blindfolded while a knife thrower flung blades at her to the electrified girl where she was strapped to a chair and doused in high amp, low voltage electricity. So sparks would fly, her hair would stand on end, and when she put a special light bulb to her skin, that light bulb would light up. It's a really cool act. You can see a version of it in Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Such a good movie. Definitely see it. Gotta see it. Definitely. Uh, And the couple married, and they settled in Gibsonton where Teresa worked at a shrimp factory in the winter. During the summer, of course, the two would tour the carnival circuit. But the carnival circuit proved to be hard on the young lovebirds. Grady and Teresa's first child, Margaret, died after only 26 days of pneumonia. Their second child, David, lasted only two days longer and passed away at 28 days. Both of these deaths are thought to be from the constant travel and drafty conditions. It's a tough life. Yeah. But then in 1963, Donna Marie was born. And Donna Marie was a healthy, normal child who had avoided the lobster gene. And in 1969, Catherine was born, who, while healthy enough, did have the fused fingers and stunted legs of her father, and would go on to become part of the Lobster Family Act. After marriage and children, with his winters free for lounging about, Grady evolved into the epitome of many trailer-dwelling married men, sitting around on the couch in his underwear, drinking all day, putting on weight, and reportedly he got up to 300 pounds. But all those years of crawling about on his claws, using his arms to lift himself, had left Grady incredibly strong, a fact he was really proud of. Grady loved to show off his strength by shaking hands, using his claw to crush the other person's hand and establish a primitive dominance. He was also known as a scrapper. His signature move would be to lope across the room on his flippers incredibly fast then slap a person to the ground, headbutting them in the gut to knock the air from them, 
before finally wrapping his incredibly strong arms and claws around their neck and choking them out. Brutal. Jeez, yeah, that's that's brutal indeed. Um, and those who were hit by his claws said it was like being hit with a board. The drinking just kept getting worse and worse as well. And unfortunately, Grady was a very mean drunk. And soon he was wasted all the time, waking up at 11 for a cup of tea and hitting the whiskey by noon. He terrorized his wife and children, a bitter, bald, incredibly cruel, 300-pound man with the upper body strength of a gorilla. Grady enjoyed going on drinking benches. He hit up the local bars in Gibsonton, like Harry's and Showtown USA, which was out by the highway. Showtown USA, out by the highway. Now that is a roadhouse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I drink there. A strange thing. There seemed to be a distinctly sexual element to Grady's claws. As he later told his lawyer, everyone I have sex with wants to have sex with my claws. They love it when I use my claws. To which his wife at that time, Barbara, will get onto her later. Just nodded enthusiastically. Then Grady went on to tell his lawyer how when his daughter Donna's teacher came to the house to discuss Donna's attendance at school, once she saw those claws, she fell into a state of ecstasy. And the two of them just started screwing right there. He claims she kept coming back and back to fuck him. All because of those sexy claws of his. And on a much darker note, Getting dark right here, guys. It's reported that one night in 1973, in a drunken rage, Grady ripped off Teresa's clothes, reached his claw up into her vagina, and violently pulled out her IUD. Oh, yeah. Okay. That that got dark really yeah. fast. Um, and in case it wasn't obvious, things had spun terribly out of control. And it wasn't long after this that Teresa took the kids and she left Grady. Yeah, apparently one night Grady wasted. He like threw them out on the street in a violent rage. And this is when Teresa just had enough. Over the years, too, Teresa had been developing a friendly relationship with Harry Glenn Newman, a.k.a. Midget Man, the smallest man alive. From all accounts, Glenn, as he was called by his friends, seemed like a really caring and stand-up guy. Originally, he was a welder, but uh, unfortunately, his height of only three feet had him inhaling fumes and metal particles as he worked. And this, held, this uh, led to some health problems, and he had to quit welding and made his living in the Carney Sideshow Circuit as the smallest man alive. So the kids and Teresa moved to Ohio with Glenn to live with his mother. But unbeknownst to them, Grady filed for divorce and custody. And since Teresa was a no-show at all those court dates, she had no idea what was happening, and he was granted custody, despite being a terrible, violent drunk. Once granted custody by the courts, 
Brady, who at this point had moved back to Pittsburgh and married a Florida carny named Barbara Lucille, he went right to Ohio and violently rounded up his children, literally tossing them in the back of his truck and hauling them back to Pennsylvania. Grady and his new wife, Barbara, then had a son, Grady Stiles III, who also carried the ectrodactyly gene and would go on to perform with his father and with his half-sister, Kathy. While Teresa and Glenn also went on to have their own child and opened a successful tire store, Teresa missed her other children. And one Christmas in the early 1980s, she pleaded with Grady to let her see them. And Grady relented. She and her new family drove back to Pittsburgh to visit the Grady clan. But when they arrived, Grady pulled a pistol on them. Stunned, they watched as Grady placed a claw to his lips, whistling, and in walked Grady's 600-pound crony, Paul Fishbow, a.k.a. The fat man carrying a shotgun. Grady slapped Teresa with a claw and told her, Don't you bother me anymore, or next time I'll kill both you, Glenn, and your kid. And that was that, as far as reconciliation between the families of the shortest man alive and the lobster boy, at least for the time being. Now, Donna, the eldest daughter, who was 15 at this time, and just as a reminder, did not carry the lobster claw gene. She was desperate for any way to escape her life with her abusive and drunken father and soon fell in love with an 18-year-old Pittsburgh local named Jack Lane Jr. Donna ran away with her teenage paramour several times. Grady even unsuccessfully hired detectives to find them and swore that if he ever got the chance, he'd kill Jack Lane. Feeling desperate and cornered, detectives and cops searching for her and not seeing any way out, Donna called her father and told him she was pregnant, which incidentally she was not, and wanted to get married. This evidently deeply troubled Grady. Now, was he a sensitive father behind it all? Or was he a misogynist with a Madonna whore complex? I don't know. But either way, the fact that she was no longer a virgin hurt him. As Grady would later go on to say, quote, Donna was a virgin and a good girl until Jack Lane came along. What choice did I have? So. He gave in and told her that if she came home, he'd sign the marriage papers, which she needed from him since she was still a minor. The wedding date was set for September 28th, but on September 27th, just one day before the wedding, everything would go straight to hell. That day, Grady went to Harry's bar and drank a dozen Whiskey doubles. Okay, let me just say that again. A dozen whiskey doubles. That's like 24 shots before wheeling himself home and starting in on a gallon bottle of whiskey 
he had at the house. Apparently, he insisted there always be a gallon bottle of whiskey around. Where the fuck do you even get a gallon of whiskey? A handle, which is like the biggest bottle you usually see at the liquor store, it's only 1.75 liters, which is less than half a gallon. A gallon bottle, is this like, I don't know, some kind of carny thing? Well, I don't know. I've I've never seen anything like that before. But for the record, they say it was nothing for Lobster Boy to polish off an entire gallon bottle in a day. Ooh, that is some seriously hard drinking. Right? Oh. And then after Donna, Barbara, and Jack came back from buying Donna's wedding dress, Grady told them his wheelchair was missing. Often, neighborhood kids would play with it, and he asked his family to go looking for it. But as they were leaving, Grady called to Jack and told him he had to talk to him. Seemingly some fatherly advice from his soon-to-be father-in-law. So, Donna and Barbara went out to search for Grady's wheelchair, but soon heard two gunshots ring out. They ran back to see Jack stumbling out of the row home, bleeding, coughing up blood, and clutching his chest. Jack fell into Donna's arms, where he died. Donna, cradling her fiancé's lifeless body, mere moments after purchasing her wedding dress, looked up to see her father on his knees in his dirty underwear, smiling at her from the window. Why? She asked. Why did you do this? Grady smirked and said, Because I told you I would. And when Donna shouted back at him, You'll die for this, you son of a bitch. Grady hollered, Don't you give me any of that shit. Grady, facing the death penalty, hired a fancy lawyer named Anthony DeCello. And the first time Grady came to the office to see his slick new attorney, he was completely hammered. And DeCello kicked him out, told him to only come back sober. <laughs> Fair. And DeCello, well, he put on a good show, eliciting sympathy for the distraught, handicapped father claiming it was Jack who had threatened Grady first and bringing in character witnesses like Priscilla Begorna, who was the bearded lady, and Paul Fishbaugh, who was Grady's fat man buddy. And he got the charge reduced to voluntary manslaughter. But that's still not self-defense, so Grady's going to have to do some time, right? That's what you'd think. But while Grady wasn't going to get the death penalty for voluntary manslaughter, he still should have gotten life in prison. But in a crazy twist, the judge found that prison wasn't equipped to house someone with Grady's handicaps, not to mention his cirrhosis of the liver and emphysema from chain-smoking three packs of Palmels a day. So the judge gave Grady 15 years probation and let him walk free. 
And just to show how utterly American this story is, a country where anyone can reinvent themselves to find their version of the American dream, Lobster Boy takes the $15,000 he'd scrounged up for his lawyer, pockets it, divorces Barbara, and runs off with the money to go start his own 10-in-1 freak show. America. Fuck yeah. It's like an F. Scott Fitzgerald book. If Gatsby was a genetically deformed, violent drunk and murderer. (laughs) So much drama. Um, And if you think this tale couldn't get any stranger, our dear fellow freaks, buckle up because you just wait. (laughs) Well, Say what you want about Lobster Boy, but he must have had some sort of charm because believe it or not, and this is just insane, after all the drama and murder, Teresa, the electrified girl, somehow falls back in love with him. Yeah, that's true. And Grady, now sober, well, he somehow woos Teresa back and they move to Okeechobee, Florida together. Even his daughter, Donna, forgave him, which is really hard to believe. I mean, he killed this woman's fiance in cold blood the day before her wedding. But when she came to him and said she was in love with a local roustabout by the name of Joe Miles, he granted permission for the marriage, slipped her 300 bucks, and all was good and forgiven. Water under the bridge. And wildest of all, the scorned lover, midget man Glenn, a.k.a. the smallest man on earth, trails along with them. The poor guy had gone back to welding and had somehow fallen off a 15-foot scaffolding, seriously injuring his back. He lost the tire business he and Teresa ran because of that injury and was back to making a living on the sideshow circuit. Now, you may remember that Glenn and Teresa had a son together. This would be Harry Jr., whom everyone called Glennie. Glennie had found an act in the carny world as well. The human blockhead. For those who don't know, a human blockhead is someone who hammers nails into their nasal cavity. It's actually a pretty cool act. I've seen it performed. It's unnerving and ballsy as hell. But usually it's just part of a larger act involving magic and sword swallowing or juggling and fire eating, you know, what have you. But for Glennie, alas, pounding nails into his face seemed his only talent. With an IQ of 87, hovering on the line of being intellectually disabled, he didn't have much going for him. And as we'll see, this lack of intelligence becomes a big problem for everyone later on. Teresa found Grady to be a new man, sober, motivated, and ready to include the family in his sideshow act. But unfortunately, this newfound sobriety wouldn't last long. Three months to be exact. And Grady was soon off the wagon, drinking harder than ever, falling into the same patterns of abuse, and now supposedly 
taunting his family with the line. I killed before and got away with it. I can do it again. And while not sober, Grady was highly motivated. And in 1992, at 54 years old, he takes the show on the road. A true family venture. Kathy and her husband ran the animal oddity exhibit with a two-headed raccoon and shrunken animal heads. Wait, wait. He had a two-headed raccoon? That's what they say. I don't know. It must have been stuffed. I'm, I'm assuming. <laughs> and Donna and Joe, they ran the Gorilla Girl show. Now, I researched this Gorilla Girl show. You can find it on YouTube, though it's really grainy and hard to see. But read the comments. You'll find people who loved it back in the day. It does sound like a lot of fun. Basically, you got a beautiful woman in a cage draped in animal skins and a ballet talker explaining how she was a wild woman found in the darkest depths of the jungle. Then the ballet talker would put her into a trance, hypnotizing her. Deeper and deeper she'd go until she gave into her wild nature and transformed into a gorilla right before the audience's eyes. And if that wasn't enough of a show, ladies and gentlemen, the gorilla would then go wild, jerking the bars of its cage till it broke free and leapt into the audience, chasing those rubes around as they went screaming from the tent, the valley crying for calm and trying desperately to subdue the savage beast. Sounds fun as hell, right? Yeah, fun as hell for sure. But okay, also let me let me let me just say this. It's maybe like a little bit dangerous, right? The gorillas leaping into the audience and chasing people around. Well, you know, like the two-headed raccoon, I'm gonna have to assume it was fake. Probably just a guy in a gorilla suit. But you know, who knows? It could a whole thing could be real. I want it to be real, but <laughs> I kind of doubt that it was. <laughs> Wanting it to be real is just part of the freak show, man. That's right. All part of the show. Right. Um, and Grady, he ran the 10 in 1 freak show, which featured a human pincushion, Galeni, the blockhead, Sabrina, the snake queen, a sword swallower, Grady the third, and Kathy joined himself and the lobster family. What an act. And just to reiterate, this is 1992. To put it in context, Nirvana is on MTV. Yeah, and things were getting pretty tense. Supposedly, Grady made Kathy and Grady the third wear mittens, and if he caught them without them, he would drunkenly scream in their faces. You're giving it away for free. <laughs> and then there was the Bally man Grady had hired for his 10 in one. Merman. <gasps> I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Merman, the magician, a good looking fire eating sideshow talker. Remember, don't call him Barker. Merman and Donna's husband, Joe, who ran the Gorilla Girl Act, were constantly butting heads. And this all came to a climax in Brockton, Massachusetts, a place described as tougher than the Bronx. Tensions were high that night. 
gangs of kids were walking around with clubs and knives. A grub truck worker got stabbed for not putting enough mustard on a hot dog. And someone had cut the brake lines on Merman's truck. And when the 10 in one somehow got put right next to the Gorilla Girl show, shit went down. Now, the money was all going to the same place, but it was a point of pride between the Bally Talkers, who got the most rubes into their shows, and Joe, who was working to get them into the Gorilla Act, and Merman, who was calling them to the 10 in one ended up scrapping. Joe reportedly beat the shit out of poor Merman, but Grady Jr., he was really fond of Merman and was tired of his family's constant bickering, especially since it was rumored that Teresa, who ran the ticket counter, she'd been skimming money and shortchanging customers. So he told Merman, don't worry, buddy. Next year, it's just me and you. What happens next is quite contested. Grady III claims it all stemmed from a misunderstanding that after a fight with her drunken husband, Teresa had simply said, something has to be done. And after hearing his mother say this, Glenny the blockhead took it upon himself to plot a murder for hire against his stepdad, something the rest of the family didn't even know about. But this version is disputed, including by Glenny himself, not to mention roused about Marco Eno, who worth mentioning has the utterly classic tattoo, Carney Power. He claims he had been asked to assassinate Grady by Teresa while on the road, long before they'd even returned to old Gibtown. Now, if this is true, the big question is, did Teresa and the rest of the Grady clan know that Grady had told Merman he would abandon his family next season and that it would just be the two of them? And if so, would that be sufficient reason to kill Grady? Or was she just an abused wife who couldn't take it any longer and had grown desperate? Or, as Grady the Third says... A simple miscommunication that ended in dangerous hands. Regardless, Glennie, the human blockhead, ended up enlisting the services of a 17-year-old thug by the name of Chris Wyant, who had bragged about pulling off drive-by shootings. He hired him to murder Grady Stiles Jr., the world-famous lobster boy. And that money that Teresa had saved from shortchanging the marks and skimming off the top, $1,500 to be exact. Well, this money ended up in the hands of Chris Wyant to pay for the murder, though how that happened is contested as well. But the long and short of it is, at 11 o'clock, November 29th, 1992, the family left Grady alone in front of the television, rolling out of the trailer under the pretense of going to check on the newest member of the lobster family, Kathy's baby daughter, Misty, who shared the genetic deformities of the lobster family. They all went but little Grady, who was sleeping in the back bedroom, 
and would basically sleep through everything. With Lobster Boy alone in front of the television, it was then that Chris Wyant strolled in with a rusty pistol and he put three bullets in Lobster Boy's brain, killing him instantly. And what, you may ask, were the Lobster Boy's final words? Get the fuck out of my house and don't ever come around here again. Sadly, Grady was so hated in the community by this point that only 10 people showed up at his funeral and not a single person volunteered to be a pallbearer. In their investigation, detectives quickly noticed there was something wrong with the picture. Detectives were immediately struck by the fact that no one was sad or upset that Grady was dead. And it sure seems strange how the family left the house moments before the murder and returned right after. Not to mention, there were no signs of a robbery. Chris was supposed to ransack the house and steal Grady's wallet, but he became flummoxed when he saw that Grady wasn't wearing any pants. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess this is what you get when you have Glennie the blockhead plan a murder. As the Ramones say, D-U-M-B, everyone's accusing me. (laughs) Exactly, though. And homicide detectives, taking this cue, hauled young Glennie in. They gave him a lie detector test, which he failed miserably, before quickly folding and spilling the beans. Apparently either too naive or too stupid to ask for a lawyer. Glenn? Teresa and Chris were all charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and all three were convicted. Teresa got 12 years for manslaughter after a contentious trial where the limits of the battered woman syndrome were argued over, but eventually, Teresa was released on appeals. Chris Wyant, the shooter got 27 years for second-degree murder and has since been released. But Glennie, the human blockhead, he got life and is still in there today. As for the rest of the family, Kathy went on to be in Tim Burton's film, Big Fish, as well as the HBO series, Carnival. And Grady III, he seems to be doing quite well. He had a daughter in 1998. He's appeared in several films, including 2004's Brain Robbers from Outer Space, and has had an active life with the Venice Beach Freak Show, which still performs to this day. In 2016, he fell in love with Jessa Olmsted, the bearded lady from the Venice Beach Freak Show. They were an adorable couple. She said he made her laugh, and he said, And I quote, there is someone for everyone. It's just knowing when you find them. Aw, that's so cute. I love that. Yes, but it seems they've moved on from each other and he's in a different relationship now. But for a story so filled with drunken violence, 
murder and mayhem on so many levels. All in all, that appears to be a relatively happy ending. Absolutely. It does, you know, and, and that makes me happy because everyone is a freak in one way or another, if you think about it. And good people deserve to find happiness and appears that that's what's happened here. Well, that just about wraps it up for this week's installment of Murder Coaster. Thank you all so much for listening. And hey, fellow freaks, we want to hear from you. Have a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Well, shoot us an email at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Check you next time and stay freaky.